0: I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi everyone. I know I say it, right? Every single time you hear me, I say we're in for another amazing episode and i mean it every single time our guest for today is dr lindo bacon and i cannot tell you what an incredible soul they are i'm actually going to do something i don't normally do which is i'm going to give limited limited information in this pre you know preview summary of what our show is about today because I just can't do it justice. So, give you a brief summary. We are gonna be talking about what happens when we try to fit into expectations that other people place on us. Also, we are gonna be talking about oppression and the impact that it has on marginalized, underprivileged communities. I am super excited. I'm not going to say any more. We're just going to dive right in. All right, here we go, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I'm telling you, you have no idea what kind of a treat we're in for today on the episode. My guest is Dr. Lindo Bacon. And Lindo, first, I just want to say hello and thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Karen. I've been enjoying your podcast so much and I know about all the great work that you're doing in the
0: world and happy to be here and supporting you. Thank you. Thank you. So Lindo, what, first of all, For listeners who are not aware of this, Lindo did just release an incredible book called Radical Belonging, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unjust World. Did I actually get that title backwards? Did I? No, I know. And I agree with you. We had a
1: lot of discussion about how to make the cover for that
0: very reason. It's beautiful, and Lindo is also the author of other books, Body Respect, Health at Every Size, but I really would just like to say, Lindo, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks for asking. Well, first off, the way you know me is because of the work that I've
1: done on Health at Every Size and helping people who are struggling around um, weight concerns and food concerns and trying to figure out how do you appreciate and value your body and take good care of yourself particularly when the world treats people so unkindly in larger bodies so we're all we all get this message that there's something wrong with us if we're larger and that we all need to fear becoming larger um and as you and i know there is so much misinformation there about not only um like what that means for individuals, but what we're supposed to do about it. People are then prescribed diets, which um, don't, aren't at all effective at helping people to lose weight for the long term and just cause more problems. So anyway, you know me through originally through my work there. And um, that's a huge part of my history. And I've got a PhD in physiology. With a specialty in nutrition, where I really looked at the issues of metabolism from that kind of a perspective, and I've also looked at it from other perspectives. I have two master's degrees: one's in psychology, and the other's in exercise science. And so I'm looking. I've looked at these issues of weight and body from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and over time, my work has shifted to where it landed in my most recent book to recognize that weight is just one of many body-based oppressions and um, we're also suffering because of racism and classism and the list goes on and on and It makes everyone struggling to be themselves when there are certain aspects of themselves that just aren't valued in our culture. And so that's where my my work has shifted is to looking at the global perspective of how do we help everyone feel like they belong when we're living in this culture that doesn't treat us equitably or compassionately? Um, and it's trauma-inducing. And, you know, what are the steps to figuring out how to enjoy ourselves and celebrate ourselves, regardless of whether we get that back from others? And also, how do we change that world?
0: I, I am sure people have said this to you recently, but the timing of this book is unbelievable. And it is so necessary. One of the things that I want to actually something that that touched my heart so much. And it's actually from your other book, body respect. When you're talking about how do we live in a world where all body types are included and and we don't traumatize people for for whatever body type they have, I want to read something that you wrote. And Lindo, when I read this, and I read this a while ago, I still sometimes get tears in my eyes when I read this. You're talking about, you're referring to a young woman who's walking through her hallways at her school. And she said, every time I walk down the hall, she told me, meaning you, I see posters saying that they don't want kids to look like me. How can they possibly think that's helpful? Do they really think that making me and other kids feel that there's something wrong with my body is going to help me or anyone? Eat our fruits or our veggies? The only result I've seen is that I've been called fatso more this month than ever. There has been something about that one statement or what it, that has stuck with me and and it is it is a powerful example of how we are giving people the wrong message about weight. Do you have anything to say to that or do you have a lot of things to say to that?
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, and that was a very dramatic moment for me too to because um you're drawing that from when I was speaking during obesity awareness month. And so it's shocking to me to see that it's actually the government and the healthcare professionals who feel like stigma is effective health promotion. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it really does make such a dramatic statement and shows how clearly we've gone wrong Mm -hmm. in are good intentions, right? I mean, the idea is that we want to help people, and that's why they call that a health promotion campaign. But when you see it from that girl's perspective, it becomes so clear
0: how damaging it is. Damaging it is. It is again. I, I think I used the word a few minutes ago. Traumatizing. What was your experience when you were growing up that really brought you into this work?
1: I would not have been
0: able to articulate
1: this as the reason that I went into the work. Um, In fact, most of my life, if you would have asked me that question, I would have said that my weight was the problem and that feeling like I had to get thinner um, was the problem. And it was my exploration of trying to figure out how to get thinner that woke me up To the cultural problem, that the problem was out there in the culture, not me. So that's the way I've articulated it much of my life. However, I think now I got my own story all wrong. And that's become much more clear to me in recent years. And that old story that I was telling was Uh, The typical eating disorders narrative that we usually hear, right, that women want to get thinner because they're told that you're more attractive when you're thinner. And so that's what pushes everybody on that path towards dieting and body hatred, et cetera. But in retrospect, that wasn't my story, because the truth is, I never really felt like I was a girl. And that it wasn't a drive to be more attractive as a girl. It was a drive to try to fit in to other people's expectations of me. But if anything, my body struggles were probably more about the recognition that people saw my body judged me for it and treated me in a certain way that didn't they weren't seeing me. And that what I really wanted was I wanted to lose those curves and to have this like boyish slenderness so that people would see me for the word I use is genderqueer for the gender queer person I am rather than seeing me as a girl or later a woman
0: there's something else that you wrote in this in your book radical belonging and i just want to say ahead of time forgive me everyone cuz i could i could just quote this whole book i have it highlighted and bookmarked and all this stuff and and correct me if i'm getting this wrong but you talk i think it was at the very beginning of the book about walking into a women's restroom and another woman looking at you confused, like, are you in the right, going to the right bathroom? And then she apologized because she mistook you as a man. And that's where you felt the most hurt, that you were still being seen as the culturally expected person you were supposed to. Did I get that story correct or narrative?
1: You did, but let me just draw out the point just to make sure that it's clear to everyone. So when she did her double take because I was walking into the bathroom, it actually made me feel good because in the moment, she was recognizing that I didn't really belong there, that she didn't think I looked like a woman. And it As you were mentioning, it was the apology that hurt because the apology was saying to me was, there's something wrong with me not looking like a woman and she must have hurt my feelings for having done that. And that's the challenge for me is that unless people get to know me, unless I announce myself, too many people misgender me,
0: and it hurts. I want to be seen for who I am. There's so many times in our lives where, and I just am speaking to my own self, I just want to be seen somewhat spiritually. And and I also want to say, I'm coming at this from a cisgender, you know, I I feel aligned with who I am, things like that. So I don't want to simplify it and be like, Lindo, don't you just want to be seen spiritually? Because I'm sure you're like, that's really not what it's all about. But part of it is like, so what you're saying is, is again, and I said this earlier, don't define me just see me and and i think that's a difference i don't know if you agree with that or please if i say something that that is adding to some of the the microaggressions that go into it please lindo say something to me <laughs> yeah.
1: well the see me aspect of what you said is what i really resonate with um the don't define me i want to i think there's a lot of nuance there um because i like to claim my identities and definitions, but there's a lot of complexity there.
0: I bet. I bet. How do you feel that your work has shifted as you sort of came to this understanding somewhat of what the function of your eating disorder was, was actually hiding on underneath your discomfort with your gender. Your identity? Like, how do you, how did you shift that work? It was a shift that happened
1: over time. And I think for me, one of the most important aspects of that shift was when I realized that it wasn't just my problem, that the problem was in the culture, not me. And the more that I started to find community around that, And it wasn't just community around gender identity issues. Everybody has this feeling of not belonging. That's about being human. And the more that I'm able to connect with everybody else's humanity around the challenges of being seen and how beautiful it is when we can truly connect and see one another
0: that's where the healing happens. The healing happens in community. There's two things I want to point out from that. And again, from your book, Radical Belonging, I think you said, made a comment in the book that it's not self-love, it's belonging that we need. Yeah,
1: and and I'd like to, um, to just expand on that. One of my favorite lines from the book, and I'm not sure I'm going to get this quote exactly, is um, self-love is like a spoonful of sugar that makes the oppression go down. You know, the point that I'm making there is that, sure, self-love is important and I hope we can all move forward in appreciating and loving ourselves. But no amount of self-love is going to inoculate us against the fact that we keep coming up into worlds that may not show us that love back. And so it's not enough, and that's the distinction. It's community that can help us so that the self-love carries us, and we need to feel like we belong and that we're accepted and loved and appreciated and valued.
0: And that leads me to ask if you could describe the experience of the rat park, the rat park. Oh, Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you want me to explain it? Sure. Because that goes to show how addiction, depression, everything grows in isolation. But then when you put people in community healing begins. So I I just loved that. So I don't I don't know if you'd want to speak to it. Oh, um, my fear is that you might,
1: I, I might not even be able to remember everything that I wrote, but I, I'll try. And one of the things, unfortunately, I'm spacing on is whose research we're
0: citing right now. Um, I will absolutely tell you if you give me a minute.
1: Well, I'll babble a little while you look. Yep. Yep, you babble, go for it. I was talking about some research that was done on rats, and they um, gave rats cocaine water, and the rats promptly became addicted to it. <laughs> Boy, I, I'm not sure I even remember this whole story. Um, <laughs> you do it, and then I can fill the details
0: from there. Okay, I'll tell first of all, let me tell you who the study was. It was on page 94. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> it was bruce alexander there we go thank you bruce alexander did a um a study with rats and cocaine water and the rats were very isolated they all had like little separate tiny little almost like cells compartments or whatever and they kept getting they became very quickly addicted to the cocaine water then created a, like a rat park with, where people were like in a, like rats were in a community together and there were trees and there were, there were, you know, I'm making this up now, youth centers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> there were slides. I don't know what there was, but there was, it was like a community and a, I think it was a hundred percent of the rats stopped going to the cocaine water because that's what, and I should probably look that up before I say a hundred percent, but that's, what happens in belonging, when we're in belonging. And that's also why you're saying, possibly, self-love is not enough. Because if we're in isolation, if we're being oppressed, if we're being marginalized, self-love is not enough. We need to belong. So I, didn't, I, hope, I, I hope I explained that well to you.
1: That works. Yeah. I mean, you got the main point across, even if we might have messed up a little bit on the details there. And what, what you'll notice, too, is that that's a, the chapter I have in there about addiction is a very different model than is currently used right now, because these days what we do is we're very critical of people who are addicts, you know, and it's like there's something wrong with them. But what if we created a place where they were loved and supported um, instead of told they were bad, what if we had empathy for why they reached for drugs? And what if we provided them with some of the things they needed that um made their lives so miserable? and you know, could we find ways where they where community worked better for them and f- they felt supported. And there's so much research that shows that when you make people's lives easier, you know, like, for example, so that if you raise minimum wage so that people aren't struggling so much to get by financially, it improves their mental and their physical health.
0: What is that? uh, There's a term about, and this goes back to, if you sort of, peel back all the layers to the the person they were prior to all these like institutionalized traumas what is it there's a pipeline school to prison well okay so that's an example of something
1: that kind of puts people on a path let's say for example that a kid comes from a trauma ridden environment right let's say you know they're too scared to walk out of their house because there's a lot of violence in their neighborhood and you know, so they can only leave when they're in packs of people and they're taught fear. Um, Of course, when the kid is in school, they're going to have increased vigilance. They're going to be watchful and not trusting of other people. That's a natural, healthy response to the environment that they grew in to be distrustful of people. Um, So what that means is, They might be easily distracted in class because, you know, they're wondering when the next outbreak of violence is going to happen and they're not totally focused on the teacher, right? There's all these reasons why they could be vigilant or hyper reactive or get in fights easily. But then what happens is they get labeled as bad students or stupid, and um, they get put in poorer classes and not given as many opportunities to thrive and succeed. And, you know, all of that stuff is just going to make it harder to achieve things in life. So they call that the school to prison pipeline, um, where kids don't have as many opportunities. And of course, right now we're in particular, if we're going to name one community that is most vulnerable to this, it's black
0: men. And so this is where I I think you were talking about instead of labeling somebody, because this is also where addiction happens, things like that. Um, so, and 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 again, I feel like I'm quoting your whole book, but instead of saying like, hi, my name is Karen, and I'm an, I'm a drug addict, you said, well, I'll use, you know, you said, hi, my name is Lindo, and I, I have human suffering, and I came from a really tough background, and a way to survive the streets was to get addicted to drugs. Like, there's actually a whole narrative behind it, but instead, we just put a label on it and say, I'm a drug addict
1: exactly you got the general idea right but just to make sure for the listeners that's not really my story i didn't i grew up in a lot of privilege and not on the streets but i but yes you do get the general idea of of how we can look at this frame
0: yeah yeah i know this is a really big general question but what are your thoughts just about our political environment right now, racism, everything that's happening. I mean, what what are your thoughts? Well, first off, um, racism is nothing
1: new. Um, police killing black men is nothing new, but it's finally in the public consciousness uh, to some extent. And we're grappling with that right now. And we're in a very painful state. And I don't know where we're going to land. I'm very fearful for the future. But it's very clear right now that this world is so inequitable. And some of us have so much opportunity and other people are given such hard lives and just don't have the same possibility for thriving. And we can't go on this way. And for too long, I think the people with privilege have not been aware of how much privilege they have and what life is like for other people. And hopefully being hit with it Many people right now are starting to grapple with it, and there's a larger movement that's recognizing that we need change.
0: Well, I think you made a good point. It's not that racism is new it's It's just that it's it's been newly like screaming from the rooftops like there's more there's more voice to it, but this has been going on forever. And so the fact that, you know, some people are saying like, and now there's racism in the country. And I'm thinking, well, there's been racism all along. No one's been yelling about it yet. Or I don't want to say no one, but not to this, this degree. I think if it's okay, what I want to do is I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because I could obviously talk about your book all day, but then nobody's going to get your book because I'm just going to talk all about it. I want to go back a little bit to your own personal story about how you, and, and when I say how, like people have said to me before, like, Karen, how did you recover from an eating disorder? I'm like, uh, do you have a couple months for me to tell? Like, I, I can't just say it in one sentence, but you know, you did go through a lot of suffering in life with again, gender identity, um, your body, things like that. Like, do you believe in full recovery? I know that's sort of going off topic, but talking about the the eating disorder part that you experienced, do you believe in full recovery?
1: I think it's challenging in large part only because we all have different um, language that we use. So, I don't want to get too hung up on the language, but what I can say is that for me, recovery doesn't mean that my drive to overeat or to comfort myself with food has gone away. But yes, I do consider myself fully recovered because what's different for me now is that I can sit with those feelings better and I could recognize that, hey, This is my humanity talking that, you know, I'm feeling that drive. And that's because I'm having a hard time right now and I want comfort. And that's one of the things that temporarily comforts me. And then I get to make choices about what I want to do next. Do I reach for the ice cream and get through that moment? And then, you know, how am I going to? Um, feel with myself afterwards will I be able to offer myself compassion and you know acceptance for having made a way made a good choice to get through to find a way to get through in a moment when I didn't I just felt like that was the only option I could the best option I could choose like so can you keep um, accepting your humanity and taking care of yourself and certainly in these times of um, we're in the midst of the pandemic and um, the usual ways we take care of ourselves aren't as easily accessible to us. You know, we, we can't go out and do all the things we used to. We can't hug our friends. So we're more limited in the skills in what we can do to, to get through hard times and so that means that we're more likely to be making some of the choices that we feel might not be as health-inducing, right? Like, like you know, in the context of the work that you do, like eating, for example. I hope that what we can do is that we could recognize that the drive to eat is basically just... Uh, human way of recognizing that um, we're having a hard time and we need to take care of ourselves. This is one way we know. And are there other ways that we want to take care of ourselves? Or is this going to be the best choice in the moment? And whatever choice we make that we can have compassion for ourselves for why that was the best choice to make in the moment. So recovery doesn't mean that you stop overeating or maybe over, in fact, overeating is even the wrong word here because eating more than you might need physically sometimes isn't about overeating. It's about taking care of yourself, right? Let's not pathologize it as a behavior. So basically what I'm just, what I'm just suggesting is that recovery is about learning how to Number one, sit with discomfort and difficult feelings better and find ways to manage and take care of them that feel better to you. And throughout our entire lives, we're on a journey of being able to improve on that. It's not like that ever goes away. We will always keep coming up against challenging situations that we're going to have to keep
0: adapting to. It's one of the reasons that I actually created the podcast is because life does present with challenges. Again, look where we all are right now. And so that doesn't mean that if that, that doesn't mean that, that let me take a step back. Uh, Often people have said to me, you know, my my life is, I must be failing at recovery because I still have struggles. I still have relationship issues. There's still pandemics. There's still this. And I was like, oh, so now basically you're living in the world and feeling it and understanding how it's impacting you. That's the difference. I think what I want to point out is, is an example that you used in the book that it is more about what you do after. And and this is also similar to what you were saying. Like somebody who doesn't struggle with alcoholism, if they went home and said, I had a really long day and I'm going to have a glass of wine. But if somebody can't stop drinking after that, I'm actually not getting my point across Lindo. I know exactly what I'm trying to say, (laughs) but it's not, it's not getting there. So I'm going to sort it move away from that because it's going to drive me crazy. I'll probably come back to it because I usually do. I lose my train of thought a little bit and then I come back. What was it like writing this book? Did it bring up a lot of emotions? I have to imagine it was a you know, not only a reflection of experiences that you went through in life that were challenging, but also beautiful things and bringing us up to today with what's happening in the world. So What was the experience like? The book took me through many different stages,
1: and each stage was emotionally very different. Um, The first stage of writing the book, it started out basically as a journal where I was writing my pain, just kind of looking back at the challenges that I'd faced. And I wrote that through tears. The second stage of the book, though, was recognizing that I am so much more than my trauma, you know, and that those difficult experiences I had all contributed to making me who I am today, you know? So, for example, the feeling that I had when I was younger where um, I was never enough for my parents and that they weren't proud of me which wasn't true, but that, that was how I felt um, at times. That's the stuff that kind of spurred me through three graduate degrees. Because like, you know, I went to school and I still just felt like inadequate. Like that wasn't enough to prove my worthiness to my parents and to the world. And so I had to go back to get more credibility in the world. And so the the process that drove my education might not have been the healthiest process because it was a search for credibility. But on the other hand, I got so much out of that education and it has given me a certain amount of credibility and ability to have a platform in the world. And I've learned a tremendous amount. So the stuff that was part of my sickness is also part of what makes me amazing and successful too. So I think that I've been able to relook at my trauma as my um, my beauty marks, you know, like the stuff that was ugly earlier are my beauty marks today and contributed to how I get to be in the world. Another aspect of writing the book was, I was also able to go back to all of those stages and I could write in the science of why those adjustments that I made were meaningful. So for example, I could um, dissect what trauma means And how it affects us, how it changes our physiology to make us more vigilant and distrusting and messes up relationships and contributes to things like diabetes and heart disease and depression. I could map all of that stuff out scientifically for people to help them understand why they might turn to substances today. and. I could put in the healing science too. So I was able to write the book in so many different stages. And then it all came together in the end where it became about using my own personal storytelling to draw people in. My scientific background to kind of give it a credibility and put it in context and understanding, give people confidence that the path that I was recommending, it, it makes sense. And I was able to add all of the stuff I've learned through mindfulness and psychology to help us see the actual tools you could that I employed and why they work and show people how they can grab onto them. So I feel like It was a hard book to write because I had all of these different elements. And when I was, while I was doing it, I didn't know how it was going to come together. And it was very, very frustrating and painful. But in the end, I felt like they all worked together. I I did find that what felt like magic to me where, um, I got something that I feel really proud of and the feedback that I'm so far getting from people is that the book has really been quite transformative for many people. And that's just thrilling to be at this stage right now where people are reading and giving me that feedback. And um, so it's very exciting, but it has not
0: been an easy path to get here. I'm sure, you know, the book for me also, like one of the things that I really do love about myself for, you know, without sounding so narcissistic is that I, I'm always learning about myself always like, and I, and I love that I, I can look back on my life and moments that I, I didn't remember happened and I can read something and go, Oh my God, gosh, I forgot about that. There was something that you wrote about and I want to grab it really quickly. And it just, it sent me back into a memory that Lindo, I, I think for a moment, I, I left this time in earth and I was back on my driveway. You were writing about what it was like being pressured into living the, the identity of being a young girl when you were younger. And I, I think this was maybe before or after your bat mitzvah. And you said, uh, for a while as a kid in preteen with a body relatively unmarked by visible signs of gender, I could flourish in that liminal space. As I moved into puberty however my body started to change and so did the way people interacted with me. I like that went back to a memory of my childhood. I had a next door neighbor who was a year younger than me, also a girl. We were playing on my driveway with some other neighborhood kids and this young girl took off her shirt because she was like a baby and little girls can run around without their shirts or whatever. And I wanted to also. So I took off my shirt and one of the boys said, Karen, put your shirt back on. You're a girl, like what? And Lindo, I remember in that moment thinking, first of all, if we're both girls, why can't I, what is wrong with my body? That was the first time I felt my body had, I'm gonna use the word power, but I don't mean it in a positive way, a power that I, I have no control over. And it really, it embarrassed me. I was humiliated. I was ashamed. I was sad. Why can't I still do this? Why can't I still run around without my shirt on or whatever? But that's what happens. We get put in these gender roles and they start squashing our little souls that really just want to be free, carefree. And it was a powerful, powerful image for me.
1: Right. That's a really powerful story. And I'm sure that every listener can recount stories of when they were shamed for not acting their gender. You know, whether it's the obvious things like a boy crying or, um, you know, a girl not being attractive enough. Those are the things that we hear about in the media. There are millions of ways that we're taught that we're supposed to act. And, while most people probably don't don't have the same gender identity that I do, every single person has some ways in which they do not fully align with the gender that they were that their role that they're supposed to play out and at some point in their life has been shamed and taught that they're supposed to act a certain way. And how freeing the world could be if we stopped putting people into these gender boxes and gave everybody the freedom to just develop whoever to be whoever they want to be. But we are so far from that world.
0: You know what else played through my head the whole time I was reading your book? I hope it's okay for me to say this. Do you remember, um, I think it came out in the 70s uh free to be you and me with Marla Thomas I agree. My gosh it's it's this wonderful story it's it's these performers talking about like it's okay if a a boy wants to be like a boy wants to be a cocktail waitress and a girl wants to be a a fireman like it was starting very very young and it's and boys cry and it's okay and you know we we impose these the like you said these thoughts these constraints on people and when they don't fit in it we shame them and one of the
1: things i'm i'm glad to hear you talk about this story because i think one of the biggest things i was looking for in the book was to see if there could be some kind of universal awakening like I don't want this to be seen as a book written for trans people. I don't want people to see this as a book written about gender identity. What I really wanted to do was just awaken that universal sense so that as people are reading through the stories, they can find their own way of relating to that idea of not belonging and not fitting in um, that would span across racial lines and class lines and disability and all kinds of things and um so it's nice to see when you know that you can relate to a, a story that is about being gender queer even
0: though you're cisgender yourself it it there were a lot of moments in the book when I I read and I felt just had visceral feelings of memories that happened throughout my life. Um, it is it is an absolutely un unbelievable book. There there are so many thought-provoking comments chapters like i just and again if i don't want to give the whole book away but i could i could read this whole book on on the air the one thing i will say though which is one of my favorite parts was at the very end when you were talking about bathrooms that should be you know all inclusive and you said you were somewhere in a bathroom said whatever just make sure you wash your hands after <laughs> i thought that was I thought that was like, that's it right there. doesn't matter. Just wash your hands because that's very important to me. I
1: know. It just seems like, particularly if you have a single stall bathroom, why do you need to put a sign on it that says either men or
0: women, whatever? Yeah, whatever. Just wash your hands. I I really appreciated that part. Linda, we are coming to an end. Is there anything that you would like to say that I didn't ask you? I I do have one final, final question off of this topic, but is there anything you'd like to add that I didn't ask or anything you'd like to say?
1: I can't think of anything. I've appreciated your questions, and I think you gave us space to talk about a lot.
0: Lindo, it has been an absolute pleasure. So, of course, I do always end with a final question, which is, Lindo, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? Oh, let's see. Oh, oh, that's easy. Romance. Beautiful.
1: And that's not just because my partner opened the door to see if we were done. (laughs)
0: I just, nobody can see this, but I just saw Linda look over and I thought, is somebody in the room with them? (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, that was a great answer. Linda, again, thank you. Congratulations on the book. And I don't think I, I, that even sounds right. I don't think I've ever used that term before. Congratulations. I just, I actually want to say thank you. That's, I want to take away congratulations. I want to say thank you for the book. It is, it is powerful. It is beautiful. Um, It is, I think, a must read for everyone. So I just, I really want to say thank you. That's
1: unbelievably sweet. Thank you. And um, I'm really glad to be part of this community of people that's just trying to build a better world. And it's been wonderful to talk to you and to learn about what you're doing as well. And just to feel part of the fact, just, yeah. The world is changing and we all want love and belonging. And we all are trying to find our ways to support one another in making this happen. So thanks for what you do too. Thank
0: you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com dot com forward slash podcast you can subscribe to future shows by searching recovery bites on apple podcast spotify and google podcast all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week